right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a low right now. That. You don't got time that. All right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson. Along with me, as always, Adam Dravetta. We'll be joined by Josh Briscoe of Arrowhead Report on SI Now, almost entirely sports and times ours. He'll join us to talk Kansas City Chiefs in about 30 minutes from right now. We'll also be joined by Stephen Lassen. We've had him on a couple times throughout the college football season from Athlon Sports to talk about the college football playoffs, some bowl games ahead, the Heismans this weekend, all that good jazz. We also have uh, a lot of Bill Self and, and KU basketball audio to share with you over the rest of the show after they just met with the media. I, I do want to start, though, the KU volleyball season um, coming to a close we carried those games last week in the first and second round. Lost today. We're swept by Pittsburgh. Um, and it's it's unfortunate, but, you know, Pittsburgh was the number three team in the country. They were hosting that regional, so it was a, it was a road game. You had a handful of fifth-year seniors on Pittsburgh. You could just see, like, the athleticism and the level of speed with which they hit the ball. But even though the season comes to a close there for KU, without a doubt, a successful season. I agree, and I hope you didn't just hear that little text message noise on the air. But what well, it was, if they didn't, you now brought it. To well, it, the reason I'm bringing it up is because it was my mother uh, making a point to say they had a, it's a it's a it's a. She said, "On nuts, what a great season, though," was her take on it. So, um, I yeah, I mean, I think I I tweeted this out. You, you were looking at mid November. Um, they weren't even assured that they were going to be playing in the postseason, and. They did, and they made the most of it, and they beat two top twenty teams to get there. We talked uh, a lot ahead of the ahead of their first round game that that Oregon had a legitimate reason to think that they should have been hosting, uh, and they weren't. Uh, so that, but that does tell you how good they were that they were on the edge of being one of the of the hosts. Which, in order to do that, you have to be one of the top sixteen seeds. Which, again, to compare that to uh, the basketball tournament, that would be the equivalent of being a, a top four seed. Um, and and so you know they they played two really good teams and beat two really good teams, and I think they got uh, a dose today of what they could become. It, you know I you know they if if they work with their strength and conditioning coordinator. I mean they are so young. That's what I think is the coolest part about this. I mean I you know that that squad with Havili and um, Kelsey Payne, Cassie Waite, Cassie Waite was a year older than those uh, two that I just named. Susie was on that team, Rigdon, Madison Rigdon. But anyway, that group, um, they kind of built toward their high levels of success. They were sophomores when they broke through and they made the Final Four. Cassie Waite was a junior. Cassie Waite's senior year, those other players' junior year, was the year that they uh, won the Big 12. This team, this is a group of freshmen, Mm -hmm. and they, you know, that's a lot for them to look forward to now they can't as with any sport you can't um you can't stay the same because if you stay the same you're getting worse because everybody around you is getting better so you have to improve 
But if you look at what they did, and, and look, K-State, they went to the tournament too. And their last weekend of the uh, year, uh, J- the Jayhawks played in Manhattan the last weekend of the regular season. Then they beat K-State on a Friday night and beat them again that Saturday. So they won, what's that, three straight matches against tournament caliber competition if you count their last two matches of the regular season. I mean, or no, four straight because they beat K-State twice. So they, were, they they finished the regular season with two wins over a team that made the NCAA tournament in K-State. And then they got to the tournament and they beat uh, Omaha or they beat Oregon and Creighton up in Omaha. Um, they're not. Fe- I can't imagine they're feeling good right now. In time of your competitor, you think you've got a, a chance to win. So I'm sure they're hurting. But I, I hope um, I hope they can look back on this and and be happy with what they accomplished. Be happy with the ride they went on and and brought everybody with them. I mean this this group got a ton of attention because of their run and rightly so. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I hope they, they take whatever disappointment they are feeling right now and understand that, that using that as some sort of motivation, they can, I mean, there's no reason to think that they shouldn't, you know, if things go their way and they keep improving, we could be talking about Lawrence hosting a regional, the way Pittsburgh hosting a regional. Yeah, that's, I think, the goal next year, at least be hosting in the first, second round, because I would imagine they'll be preseason top 25. I'd imagine they'll finish this year in the top 25. And then you look into next year, half their starters were freshmen or sophomores this year. You have Aya El Nadi, I believe that's how you pronounce it, um, who missed all of this year after she was Big 12 all-rookie team as a freshman, had an injury that kept her out all season long. Um, Who knows what else they'll add with, you know, like the transfer portal and everything. Uh, they have a couple seniors on the team who play, but I don't know if they're eligible. I know a couple of them at least are to come back for a second senior year because of the COVID rules. So they're going to have a lot of players back. They have a young core. They've got a good recruiting class coming in. Really exciting things to come for KU Volleyball. If I were to say, um, I guess, I don't know, uh, when you think about all the sports that KU has, or, or at least the ones that... You know, I, I don't know how certain sports work. Like, for instance, I don't know how is there like an NCAA tournament for rowing or something? I, I don't know. But um, as far as the ones like baseball, volleyball, softball, soccer, uh, bas- women's basketball, men's basketball, all those sports, there's a very real chance KU volleyball has at least the second best season of any KU sport this year or, you know, it, for KU basketball, obviously the hopes are going to be to go higher than the Sweet 16, but We've seen seasons flame out in the second round before, so there is a chance it could end up with the best season if you're just looking at it from a, a postseason perspective. But uh, I think it's definitely fair to say that the KU volleyball probably will end up being the second best KU sports team this season. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, track may have something to say about that. I yeah, know they're I different. They, they have yeah. meets rather than tournaments, but they they've been. Uh, you know, the KU has been pretty good in track. But yeah, you're 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 right. They are. Um, they're at the forefront of of KU athletics right now, mm-hmm. and I mean it's not like they they had no reason. You know when they expanded um, Horish Family Event Center, there where the volleyball team plays, it isn't like they did that on a whim. Just saying, well, we got to keep up the with the Joneses. They were, ha- I mean they they were packing the place with it being the way it was, so they had to expand it. Fans were forcing them to expand it uh, because they were packing the place and. Uh, you know, so they've got an awesome new facility, and um, I don't know exactly what uh, Coach Bouchard's age is, but I got to think he's 
if if you know, I I don't know where his mind was, but I got to think he's feeling pretty energetic after this season. Oh, hundred percent. So good year overall for the KU volleyball team. It was a ton of fun to cover last week. We wish we could have gone out there this week, but uh, such is life with the long travel that it would have been had in, in Pittsburgh. So KU beats UTEP in on Tuesday in basketball. We didn't really talk about this yesterday. I did mention it briefly in a question with Jesse Newell of. You know, where does this put the team when you look at their schedule right now and there aren't really a lot of marquee victories? Does this put KU behind the eight ball for getting like a one seed? And and as Jesse talked about, like, does it really matter? You know, if you get a two seed or three seed, but you're better than that, it doesn't really matter. And we've seen years past where KU has maybe been a two seed and maybe they more deserve to be a three or four seed versus how good they were. It's just they did such a good job with the schedule that they earned a higher seed and it ended up not working out. So I, I don't mean to say this as if, you know, if they don't get a one seed, they're not going to go to final four or anything. That's certainly not true. But we do know statistically, you know, if you go back, there are a higher percentage of one seeds that make the final four that win a national championship than two seeds. Again, doesn't make it the rule. Just you would rather be in company of what's more likely to happen, right? Um, so I did start to wonder as I was watching that game when UTEP really struggled. UTEP, not a very good basketball team. And if you go and look at KU's schedule, it doesn't really jump off the page as being one that um, is one that we're used to. KU typically has a rugged non-con. Well, so far this year, they've played one top 25 Ken Palm team. They have played two top 70 Ken Palm teams and just three top 100 Ken Palm teams. And one of which was a loss, which was Dayton. They've played zero top 20 Ken Palm teams. And here is what's left in the non-con for them still to play by Ken Palm ranking. 138, 145, 65, 175. And then into late January, you do get that game with Kentucky, who's 20th. So I kind of wonder... If unless KU goes, you know, if KU goes 14 and 4, 15 and 3 in the Big 12, they're probably getting a one seed no matter what. But if this is one of those years where, you know, winning the Big 12, you go 12 and 6 or 13 and 5, you share the Big 12, you lose in the Big 12 semifinals in the tournament, I I don't think it it was enough to get a one seed, especially without the fact that you didn't get a potential marquee win in the Alabama game that you were kind of expecting to happen and it just didn't end up happening. Yeah, I think we'll be interested. This will be a conversation we'll have to revisit in January because the the big key right now is keep an eye on what Michigan State does, keep an eye on what Dayton becomes, even though that was a loss. Um, see if UTEP puts something together in their conference play, although they, they were really bad. Um, St. John's is in the Big East that that can get you know they they can impress there. You know, I, I don't know. It, it's weird things happen. Um, and you know, I, I I'm not too um, I I don't know. I'm just I'm not I'm not too. And I know you're not concerned, so I don't want to I don't want to use that word. But on this topic, I I just I think they they still have a lot to say themselves about in the control they have over grabbing a one seed. You're absolutely right. This is not the KU non-con we're used to seeing, and that's the overall point to be made here. Uh, but it, you know, it, but I still think they have a lot. Of, I mean, they're going to play Texas twice. They're going to play Baylor twice. Um, Oklahoma, Iowa State twice. So you know they they have some opportunities in their own conference to to really build a you know build something. Um, and the one the, the funny thing about the one seed thing and and you know the amount of teams 
that were ones that went to the Final Four, it's kind of a chicken or egg. Did they go to the Final Four because they were a one seed, or did they go to a Final Four and get a one seed because they just were a really good team, right? So it wasn't so much the number next to their name that that helped them get to the Final Four. It was just the fact that they were a really good team and thus got a, you know, number one number next to their name. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, that's probably the more accurate way of looking at things. It's just, you know, you're kind of playing the numbers game there. So I, I think, like you said, it's not concerning uh, because, again, it, it doesn't matter I that mean, much. Put it this way. If they're a two-seed in Chicago, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not and hating that. That's that. the other piece here, though, that, you know, you look at the geography of this NCAA tournament. Fort Worth, I think, is the closest their rounds yeah. of 64 and 32 so, would be. There's not going to be like a, oh, hey, if you get the one seed versus the two seed this year, that's the difference between you playing in Omaha or in Tulsa versus having to go play in Dallas or something like that. Like, that's not the case at all. So that matters as well. I just think it's interesting. It's just it's just kind of fodder. You know, it's sports radio talk, and that's what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. This is this is just the conversation we're having because we, we have 15 hours <laughs> right. a week to fill. And there's not, you know, they're, they're playing two games a week. We're not in conference play, you know. It, so yeah, but I do think it's it's a it's it's a noteworthy. I think the overall topic that's that's the bigger discussion, and, and we're boiling it down to how it relates to seeding come March. But the bigger discussion is how different this non-con looks mm-hmm. versus how it looked at the beginning of the year. Oh yeah. Yeah, because, and how different it looks uh, by virtue of not playing Alabama. Yeah, that was the big one because that would have been your other marquee game. And, you know, Michigan State, I still think that'll end up being, you know, a good win, and I'm sure they'll continue to rise, but it's not going to be like a, a top 10 win most are likely. Are they ranked right now? Uh, I don't know if they are in the AP poll, but they would be if it was based on Ken Palm. So it just kind of depends, you know, what okay. you'd be looking at. St. John's, right? Like right now they're ranked 69th on Ken Palm, but who knows? Maybe they could be a team that, that moves up into the NCAA tournament range. I like range. that they're rolling these teams, though. Would yeah. They, I mean, Dayton, obviously, they were really, they, they struggled against mm-hmm. um, after getting that big lead. But, you know, even the Michigan State game wasn't ever, they didn't, excuse me, they didn't blow them out, but it wasn't ever the last four or five minutes weren't in doubt. I think what this comes down to now, though, if you're just looking at the non-con and opportunities to get those big wins, it pretty much just boils down to me like the Kentucky game just comes a lot more important. Not that they're even like like they're in the 20s in Ken Palm, right? Um, but that might be a team that raises up by the time we get to January, by the time we get to March. So who knows what, what that win will look like. But I kind of view it as... That's your last opportunity for one of those marquee non-con wins. If you lose to Kentucky, I think you kind of look at it and say, if you do want to get a one seed, you probably do have to go fourteen and four in the Big Twelve and win the Big Twelve tournament. Yeah, and that that was what that's exactly what happened in twenty eighteen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think I think you're right. Um, I, I what I look back in two thousand twelve, that team that went to the title game, they went sixteen. That was the first year that the Big Twelve did that double round robin. KU went 16-2. and two. They won the conference by two games, but they lost in the Big 12 semifinals to Baylor, a Baylor team that I think turned out to be a three-seed in the NCAA tournament. So it was a good, it was a top-15 Baylor team, um, but they did lose to them in the Big 12 tournament and in the semifinals, and that team wound up as a two-seed. Um, so, you know, there's precedent for them doing really well, but they, they also... I don't remember any marquee victories. I remember marquee games in the non-con that year, but no marquee victories because they lost to Kentucky in non-con that year. 
in the first year of the Champions Classic and then the Maui Championship, they lost to Duke. Um, so they had some marquee opportunities in the non-con that year. They just didn't take advantage any, of any of them. Yeah, long away are we from the, it feels like, the Larry Keating specials where all of a sudden you look up and they're, oh, they've beaten like seven NCAA tournament teams in for the, the uh, non-con. we're all rooting for you for a host of reasons, Coach Leipold. We like you. We love KU. But if you can really get this thing going so we're not talking about tournament seeding in <laughs> December and we can be talking about a KU football bowl game coming up, that'd be awesome. Yeah, it would. All right, uh, we will talk bowl games coming up with Stephen Lassen at about 4.15. With Adam Dravet, I'm Derek Johnson. Josh Briscoe joins us in about 20 minutes from right now to talk Chiefs. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320KLWN, KLWN.com. Depend on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com, and we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Welcome back. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Adam Rivetta. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Joined now by Josh Briscoe. So, Josh, we had you on, I think, not the last time, but the time before that, and then it coincided with the Chiefs having an awful string of play, and then we had you on last time, and since then has correlated with the defense's resurgence and uh, the team going on this whatever four or five game winning streak. Um, so are, are we tempting fate here by having you on once again? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a terrible strategic idea, <laughs> but a great content idea. And, you know, we, we like to, to see the Chiefs play well because it makes it more fun to talk about. But our main job is the good content. Whatever, whatever sort of, uh, I don't know, extraterrestrial sort of uh, influence I may have over the, the Chiefs, we're going to have to roll the dice today. All right, we're talking with Josh Briscoe, Arrowhead Report on SI Now, almost entirely sports on 810, and Times Ours on The Athletic. So it's one thing to just improve, but uh, the Chiefs' defense has literally gone from maybe the worst in the league and, and one of the worst in league history early on to now what has become one of the better defenses in the NFL. Uh, what do you attribute to be the biggest change here, and how sustainable do you think all of that is? Well, I think it's multifaceted, but because it's multifaceted, I do think that it is sustainable, which is a great development. I think that the number of things that have gotten better since that terrible stretch, you can look at some of the personnel choices. Willie Gay got healthy and more playing time and has been very productive in that role. Nick Bolton has gotten more comfortable in the defense and has been good in that role. Juan Thornhill has been very good, and yes, Dan Sorensen just had his perfect Dirty Dan moment last week, but he's in a role that fits him better right now. He's, he's, he's doing what he should be doing and can make plays there. Plus, you saw Frank Clark get healthy and more productive again. Chris Jones moves to the inside. We heard from Melvin Ingram at Chiefs Pressers today. Uh, he's obviously been a little bit of a boost there as well. So I, I think it's all of those things on a personnel side. Plus, these some of those defenses do this sometimes, where they start off in one form, and then ultimately they, they pull it all together for a stretch where all of a sudden everything seems to fall into place. And so I think everybody deserves some of that credit because you can put some of it on literally every unit. I think we talked about this as many weeks ago. I don't think the Chiefs did anything well on the defensive side of the ball for the first four or five weeks or whatever it was. Uh, now I think they do everything pretty well, which is a remarkable turnaround. In uh, the Denver game last weekend, I actually, you know, uh, felt fine about 
the offense compared to some other games, which is weird because not that they had like a good performance, but just because of how it happened with the way they struggled. You know, you had 20 mile per hour win. You had Patrick Mahomes missing throws. You had guys dropping passes. And I guess dropped passes has, has been a little bit of a continued theme this season. So that is a bit worrisome. And yes, Patrick Mahomes maybe hasn't played as as well at certain times this season, and, and that would be one of them, which is missing throws. But because of all that, I don't feel like that was the same as, as maybe earlier in the season when it was, you know, the Chiefs just refused to adjust to what the defenses are doing. Like, they adjusted in that game. I think the, the game plan and everything was, was right. It was just a lack of execution, which almost gives me more confidence that they're going to get it figured out just because of the fact that you know, you don't expect Patrick Mahomes to miss a handful of throws. You don't expect uh, more than a handful of drops in a game. Uh, do you agree with that, or um, do you think uh, there's more cause of concern coming out of the Broncos game for the offense? I think I probably have a little more remaining skepticism, probably in part because of what you sort of alluded to in some of the earlier season stuff. You're right, obviously, and this was a, a you know a heavy talking point and a well earned one. That the Chiefs were seeing a ton of too high coverage, or at least a lot of different two safety looks. It's not always the same thing, we, you know. But generally speaking, two deep safeties was a thing that a lot of teams were trying to even do, or in the case of the Raiders, kind of disguise and then work to, because that was the thing working pretty well against the Chiefs' deep passing game. And I still think that we're seeing some of the issues of that, which also spreads to some of the issues that we've now seen all year long. So it's kind of multifaceted again. The, the, the way that your defenses are playing this team is saying, hey, we're going to make you go little chunk by little chunk, little step by little step, and we're just hoping that somewhere along us making you run 15 plays or whatever it may be, let's say 12 plays to go the length of the field, well, because you can't just throw a 75-yard bomb to Tyreek Hill, Maybe on one of those 12 plays, something will go wrong. Travis Kelsey will drop a pass out of character. Or Tyreek Hill, as is becoming in character now, will have a pass go off his hands and into the hands of the defense. Those are things that I think we've seen come up more, those execution issues. Those are things you've seen come up more as defenses have adjusted this way to the Chiefs' offense. And so I think that because we've seen execution issues all year long, again, to your point on, on that front, I'm still nervous about those, even though I do think that schematically things are relatively figured out. I don't know how long you can have execution issues like that before it is just who you are. I was talking to, uh, to our friend Kit Swanson on, uh, on my show last night on A10, and, and he brought up that, like, hey, you know, the one thing I think I learned from this Broncos game is the Chiefs' offense didn't get fixed over a bye week. And I'm not sure that would have been a smart thing to guess was going to happen anyway. But now we know for a fact that's not what happened, and there are still issues there. So that does concern me because I, I don't know what the, the magic bullet would be, in fact, because I know there's there's not one. Yeah, I I don't really know what, uh, what like the proper way to view this team is then because, yeah. you know, it, it almost <laughs> does feel like, okay, well, even if the defense regresses, then you'd hope that the offense progresses. But I guess, what do you think would be more likely? Do you think it would be the Chiefs maintaining this high level of defense moving forward where over these last you know handful of weeks they are a top five defense? Or do you think it would be more likely that they would turn back into a top five offense? Um, that's a good question. I guess, boy, I guess I would say that it's more likely that, they, that for a certain stretch of the season they would they would 
maintain where their defense is at. It's very close. I could make the argument on either side there, but I, I actually think that the defense has been, like I mentioned earlier, like I think it's sustainable. And I think that what really matters there is that they don't ever become a bottom five or bottom 10 defense. And if they can be top 10 from this point forward, including the playoffs, that is a success story. Um, even, even not even going back to the way that this team started defensively this year on the offensive side, I, I have I have been incredibly bullish on this up through this week to say that yeah I mean I just think that they're going to eventually get these pieces figured back out again but I think that it's it's now at a level where there are enough little things that are going wrong often enough that it's it's not like you know Patrick Mahomes has a pinky injury or something and that's why he's he's been off here or there or that Travis Kelsey has always been a guy that drops a bunch of passes or, or Tyree Kill even more so so just just because there's more uncertainty there for me I I think I might be a little bit more bullish on the Chiefs defense and I'm probably doing that on a scale if you said legitimately top five I, I would probably go with the offense because you've seen them do that for an entire season. But I believe that the 2021 Chiefs defense is legitimately a lot closer to what we've seen these last several weeks, uh, opposed to what we saw in, in the first half of the season. And I don't know what I think the Chiefs offense is, which I, I think means I've got to stay more confident defensively right now, which is an absolutely wild place to end up being. At what point, I, you know, Patrick Mahomes is a lot like Andy Reid, where whatever goes wrong, he, he steps up and takes responsibility, and he says, well, mm-hmm. you know, on a drop, I should have gotten the ball there at a, at a different different spot, or I, I could have mm-hmm. thrown it a little better. Publicly, he's always going to say that. You've got to think, I mean, at what point, and maybe that point's already come, at what point when they're with one another and not in front of the media, is he with the guys who are supposed to be catching these balls, and he just goes, dude, what do you do? Like, at it, it, they've got. He's got to somewhat be putting it on them behind closed doors, right? Because yeah, from I my mean, untrained he, eye, it looks almost entirely on them. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. No. I, I think. I, I think that behind closed doors, I don't think that there's necessarily a vengeful Patrick Mahomes roaming around Arrowhead behind closed doors. But I do think that in meeting rooms and everything, I don't think Patrick Mahomes is being asked to take responsibility for hitting a guy um, on the hand at his right peck instead of leading him and hitting him in the hands in his left peck. Those are catches that NFL receivers have to make. The other element of that, though, is, and I can't remember who it was that, that cited this to be enemy today at Pressers, but it was along the lines of like, hey, you don't, you, you've said before, you don't tell guys to, to, net, to not fumble because then it's the only thing they think about, right? And then you're so inside your own head. I don't think Patrick Mahomes is telling guys that they need to not drop the ball because they all know that. But it also doesn't mean that that's not by far the bigger of the problems in terms of individual execution there. There are legitimate places where Mahomes, especially this year, like had a couple of bad games. And then more times you could say that's a missed throw or that one's a little behind him and it should have been a little in front of him. But whenever we're talking about the drops and all of that, those things land, in my mind, almost squarely on the shoulders of the receivers. We're talking with Josh Briscoe here on RCST. All right, uh, the Chiefs ranked 30th in the NFL in fourth down attempts. The Chiefs' defense has faced the fifth most fourth down tries. These stats make you feel blank. Sad, <laughs> I think. Um, and Andy Reid's been pretty okay in terms of fourth down decision-making this year and go-for-it scenarios. But there are a couple of individual times that, that will just 
sticking my craw forever. And I just, I understand that. I mean, and even this isn't a fourth down thing, but like at the end of the first half against the Broncos, they had a minute and nine seconds and two timeouts and they just sat on the ball and ended up giving it back to Denver anyway. And it feels like that at certain times, there's that field goal late against the Broncos, obviously, that um, has also stuck with me. But there, there are certain times when it feels like the offense doesn't have faith in itself. And I mean, you know, from maybe Andy Reid, maybe Eric Bieniemy to Patrick Mahomes in the past catchers. And, and I understand to some extent, like, they have not earned as much trust this year as they have in years past. But, man, it, it is frustrating to, to have – some of those fourth down situations that feel like obvious go situations, and and they've passed it up a number of times because the, the secret here is that Andy Reid gets it right. Like I said, a good percentage of the time, but his his process is not consistent. Now I think he would tell me that the scenarios aren't always consistent, right? And there's some truth to that. But I, I do wish that there seemed like there was a little more cohesiveness in terms of of what they do aggressively on the offensive side. Defensively, it makes a ton of sense, because if you're going up against the Chiefs' offense, at least the version we've seen the last couple of years, more so than the exact version this year, although I do think that there's still a chance that group is in there, uh, you need to be aggressive on fourth down, because you don't want to give the ball back to Patrick Mahomes, even in a season like this one. Uh, we just saw the Chiefs-Raiders matchup a few weeks ago on Sunday Night Football. Um, I'm not sure how much is really changed since then so are we expecting kind of a same result the Chiefs to you know have a big victory here what are kind of your thoughts on on this matchup with the Raiders honestly I I think having them playing so close together in their two matchups is very strange because I feel like we just talked about all of this and I I think you're right Um, obviously that was the most successful Chiefs game of the season I think especially if you take in the context of where they had been the few weeks Prior to that, and they, they put up 40. They looked dominant. And so I, I don't, honestly, I mean, I don't expect another, like, blowout victory. I also don't really expect the Raiders to win this game. And so it's, in terms of what's different, like, Deshaun Jackson's now been there for a couple of weeks more, and he's gotten a little bit more of a role in the offense. Obviously, whenever he touched the ball against the Chiefs, it went well for the Chiefs which is a you know bonkers element of that. But I, I think you know who Derek Carr is for the most part. I think you know what the Raiders' pass rush is, being a positive thing. Like They can pressure you with the guys across that line. But to your point there, I think it's just going to feel like a rematch in one of the more truer senses, as opposed to whenever they play the Chargers on Thursday night next week after playing them at the beginning of the year. like That's going to feel like a, like a couple of very different teams who have lived a lot in, in those two windows between their games. Sunday, just I think, kind of feels like an AFC West game where I expect the Chiefs to win. I expect them to not score 40 points this time. I think I've predicted them to end up with like 27. Like a 27-20 type of game where the Raiders cover. It's all kind of gross and kind of close. That's going to be my prediction for pretty much every Chiefs game until they show me something different, I think. Are you ready for another edition of Good Idea, Bad Idea? I'm always ready for another edition of Good Idea, Bad Idea. All right, Daniel Sorensen playing more after his pick six. Bad idea, bad <laughs> idea. Here's why. Again, he played like he, he has played this entire time. He never saw the bench for uh, an entire game or anything like that. Here's why it's a bad idea. He's better in this role. Let him be your strong, like your, your, your box safety or your weak linebacker in these sub packages. He's been good in that role for half a decade at this point. 
that's where he thrives, and he's also then able to be where the ball ends up, which he seems to have a legitimate nose for. He shouldn't. He his role should not change based on last week's performance at all. Because he finally got there. He's finally back where he should be. Um, the Chiefs hiring Joe Brady if Eric Bieniemy gets a head coaching job. Maybe a good idea. I, I think that uh, Mike Kafka is the OC in waiting. Um, not officially, obviously, but like that's just my assumption is that it, it's going to be his job whenever Bieniemy ends up elsewhere. Uh, but I also feel like the Joe Brady thing has been really weird. I was very surprised to see them to see the Panthers fire him after he seemed like he was going to be the next of the sort of McVay. Zach Taylor, sort of, Brandon Staley, even of those young guys that rise up the ranks really fast. I wouldn't hate them bringing him in at all. I do not think that they would hire an outsider's offensive coordinator, though. I think it's Kafka. Daryl Williams playing as a wide receiver, too. Uh, bad idea, like, out wide <laughs> a lot. He's a good weapon out of the backfield, though. Like, I mean, as, as this team's, like, third pass catcher, that might be a mandatory idea, right? Like, he's shown that to be a legitimate part of his game, uh, even though Clyde was supposedly going to be the guy that eventually took more of that role. Uh, it's an interesting backfield. Doing the opposite of what New England did on Monday Night Football, so all throws except three runs. <laughs> three runs? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, generally, I, I would have said, you would have asked me this a year ago, I'd say it's the best idea I've ever heard. Right now, I'm a little bit worried. I'd rather than play the, the inverse, though, than the way that the Patriots did. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say, good idea, just out of out of character for myself. You know, I have to say that's a good idea. Okay, uh, so you want it to be the Mike Leach offense, basically? Pretty much, yeah. That's pretty much what I what I strive for. Yeah. All right. Uh, before we let you go, Josh, one last thing with my producer and co-host Adam Dravetta. All right, Josh, one last thing, and I'm referencing a little bit of noise that we had earlier in the interview, which leads me to ask, what kind yeah, of speed, what kind of speedboat were you on when we started this interview? Uh, hi, Adam. First hey. of all, I thought I heard Derek say your name earlier, but I wasn't totally sure that I heard your last name right. So yeah, I'm, I'm the new guy around here. That's very exciting. Congratulations. It's good to, uh, good to hear your voice again. Thank uh, you. My speedboat that I was driving I thought would not be a problem, and clearly it was... Um, for me, Alec Lewis is the, uh, the, the the bar to clear in terms of always being around loud uh, motor vehicles of some sort every time he's on the radio. But apparently I have bypassed that. I'm driving my speedy uh, 2013 Ford Focus. I, I thought I would have gotten home by the time we were uh, doing this today. I was wrong. And so I guess you got some fully work from my car. Uh, I am uh, deeply apologetic, and in response to that, I will uh, I will send back my paycheck for this segment. You guys can keep it this week. Awesome. Uh, that'll it'll it'll take us a long way if we if we invest that uh, by down the line yeah. in a few yeah. years. It'll 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 multiply to zero. Put it in some cryptocurrency. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know you guys usually pay me in Dogecoin. Mm-hmm. You can keep it this week and uh, yeah, and invest it in as an as an apology, and, and maybe eventually I'll be able to buy a quieter car. <laughs> If I drove a Tesla, this wouldn't have been a problem if any sponsors are listening. Yeah, Elon Musk is a uh, big listener to the show, so we'll try to get you hooked up. He loves KU football. Not basketball, weirdly, (laughs) but he loves KU football. That's a well-known fact about him. Yeah, his uh, next son is going to be named Aqib, and his middle name will be (laughs) Tlaib. All right, he is Josh Briscoe of Almost Entirely Sports on 810. Time's ours on The Athletic and SI Now. Josh, thank you so much for the time as always, man. Much like my featured car, this interview was absolutely electric. (laughs) All right, thanks, man. Appreciate it. See you guys.
All right, that was Josh Briscoe with Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com. Depend on it. Four fifteen. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Derek Johnson with Adam Dravetta here on FM one hundred one seven thirteen twenty KLWN and KLWN dot com. Joined now by Stephen Lassen of Athlon Sports. We've had Stephen on a couple different times over the course of this college football season. So now we're into the postseason. I guess technically do have one regular season game remaining with uh, Navy and Army this weekend. Uh, so Stephen, the sample size on. The college football playoff, still relatively speaking, is is very small. It's, what, this seven years or eight years now, and who knows how much longer this iteration with four teams is going to last, but uh, was there anything to take away from this season, from this set of picks from the college football playoff committee? Maybe not because it, it was more of an obvious season, but in just trying to figure out each and every year, adding a new puzzle piece to what the committee values and what the committee is going to do headed into another season? You know, hey, Derek, that's a great question. You know, I think when it comes to things that we learned, I think it's fair to say that a group of five team, you know, we wondered if they could do it. And, and Cincinnati making it this year is a big deal. It shows it's possible in a four-team playoff, but it also took some things, I think, to go its way. You know, the fact that the ACC champion, um, you know, had two losses. We had the Pac-12 champion have three losses. The Big 12, the committee didn't really seem to respect the Big 12 all that much this year. So my big takeaway was, you know, a lot of times when we see the first rankings come out, we all sort of wonder how it's all going to work out. It usually works itself out. And in this year, the group of five was able to get in there but I also think it sort of shows where the, the playoff needs to go. And I think that this will probably only increase uh, the calls for more expansion, especially with the SEC getting two teams in, the ACC uh, and the Pac-12 getting left out. So now that we are left with these two matchups, Cincinnati-Alabama, Georgia-Michigan, I want to start with the Cincinnati-Alabama game. Uh, what has to go right for Cincinnati to, to hang with Alabama and, and who knows, maybe even pull off an upset? You know, I think the first thing is Cincinnati will not be intimidated by the environment. You know, they played Georgia really well last year in the Peach Bowl, and they went on the road and beat Notre Dame this year. So playing Power 5 teams is not really anything new to Cincinnati. So I don't think they'll be necessarily intimidated or, or nervous by the environment. I think the, the best matchup in this game is going to be what happens at the line of scrimmage when Alabama has the ball. Because for most of the season, Alabama could not run it that well, and they didn't protect Bryce Young. And somehow, they did both of those things <laughs> on Saturday against Georgia against the best defense in college football. So whatever Alabama figured out between Auburn and Georgia, I'm interested to see if they continue to build on that. You also have Alabama losing John Mechie, uh, their second-best receiver, which makes Alabama a little bit easier to defend. Of course, they have about a month to figure this out, but that's the challenge for Cincinnati. Can you disrupt Bryce Young? Can you win at the line of scrimmage? Cincinnati has been very good at getting to opposing quarterbacks this year. If they can create some disruptions and havoc at the line of scrimmage, that makes it a little bit easier to defend Bryce Young. If he's got all day to throw, it's going to be a long uh, night for Cincinnati. So I think they need to win at the line of scrimmage on defense. Offensively, it's really in the hands of quarterback Desmond Ritter. He's so good at moving around and making plays. He's gotten better as a passer. 
those two things to me are, are Cincinnati's kind of path to a victory. And, you know, they, they may also need something to go like a turnover or a special teams defensive touchdown, I think, to hang around in this one. Um, I have a quick question. I, I kind of wanted to save this for the Heisman talk, but since you brought up Bryce Young, it's very relevant to this Alabama-Cincinnati game as well. What would you say is more true of the SEC title game, uh, that Bryce Young is that good and that important to the Alabama offense, or that we were all kind of um, fooled by Georgia's defense because their schedule maybe wasn't as powerful um, as as we might have thought, so that defense wasn't it was still great, but not as freakishly dominant as we initially thought. What was what's more really true of those? Yeah, that's. A, I mean, it's a great question. I was almost going to ask, is it okay if I answer to both? Because, you know, yes to both because. You know, we talked about this, you know, a little bit during the season where you you looked at Georgia's defense and you kind of went, you know, it's been really dominant. It's been dominant for the last couple years, but the quarterbacks they played weren't really, you know, the best of the SEC. You know, they played Tennessee. Tennessee's got a good offense, uh, but they hadn't met a quarterback like Bryce Young. And I think to Bryce Young's credit and his numbers this year kind of show that, Alabama has not played well at all on the line of scrimmage. They have not been running the ball, and he's still putting up good numbers. So I think Bryce Young is a pretty special quarterback. I think he's probably the most deserving player uh, for the Heisman Trophy. But I also think it sort of showed that you know opponent strength and the offenses that you play, we probably needed to pay a little bit more attention to the fact that, hey, while Georgia's defense is really, really good, uh, the secondary hadn't been tested, and it was actually a concern coming into this year because they lost so many guys to the NFL. Well, now Georgia gets a Michigan team, which who knows if, if they'll be the team that can test that secondary because they're they're more of a run-first team. But we have seen flashes through the air this season from Michigan. So uh, what are kind of your thoughts on, on how Michigan can match up with that Georgia defense? I think, you know, the biggest thing that jumps out to you when you first study this game is what happens in the trenches. Because both of these teams are strong along the line of scrimmage on the offensive and defensive front. So we've got two kind of teams that come into this game with strengths at the line of scrimmage. But Georgia, the only, you know, we, the only team that's been able to move the ball successfully enough against Georgia was Alabama. So can Michigan's offensive line continue to win up front and give McNamara and J.J. McCarthy some easy throws and test that secondary downfield. I think if you're Michigan, the biggest reason for optimism is the fact that over the course of the season, it felt like Michigan got better on offense, and they started to find more playmakers over the course of the season. This is Donovan Edwards, the freshman running back, Blake Corum, to go with Hassan Haskins. They've got playmakers. I don't think they have the field stretchers necessarily that Alabama did on Saturday, but they uh, last Saturday. But they have enough weapons that if they can protect to take advantage of that Georgia secondary. And I think on the flip side of things, if you're Michigan, you need to use Aiden Hutchinson and Ajabo, those two defensive ends, to get after Stetson Bennett because we saw what happened in the SEC championship game. If you can disrupt the timing of that Georgia offense, make him hesitate a little bit. Uh, you know, he made some mistakes on Saturday. So I, I think that's where this game will be decided is if Michigan's offensive and defensive front can hold up against Georgia and then whether or not which team can make enough plays in the passing game because there's some question marks about both of those uh, offenses there. If you had to pick the Michigan defensive line or the Georgia defensive line, who would you go with? 
Oh man, <laughs> I would probably take man. I would probably take Georgia just because Jordan Davis is just such a big, uh, you know, kind of space eater. And then you look at the way that Carter and Wyatt play off of that. But man, it's so tough because Hutchinson is so good coming off the edge, and you got a job on the other side. So it's like one A and one B almost. <laughs> uh, so who would you go with then uh, for your national championship pick right now? I lean Alabama. Slightly, uh, I think the revenge factor for Georgia is going to be certainly in play. I am very curious to see how Alabama plays without Mechie. They also lost one of their starting cornerbacks today to injury. So uh, the Cincinnati-Alabama game will be very telling for me, um, but I would probably give Alabama a slight edge over Georgia in the national championship game. More likely to happen, Michigan beating Georgia or Cincinnati covering against Alabama? I think I would go with Michigan beating Georgia. I think Michigan's defense is going to keep them in this game. And I think you know, Michigan was one of those teams that was peaking at the right time at the end of the year. So it would not surprise me at all if Michigan wins that game. Cincinnati covering at the very black kind of backdoor last-second cover would not surprise me either, uh, but that one spreads a little scary for me. We're talking with Stephen Lassen of Athlon Sports here on RCST. Outside of the, the college football playoff, because you know ever since the playoff has happened, there has been pretty much predominant talk, and, and I think you guys have done a great job that it's not just about the playoff, but I, I know a lot of the talk just has centered around the playoff, and one of my favorite things about the BCS, as, as flawed of a system as it was, was that there was still so much, I don't know, uh, kind of luster around the other BCS bowl games and, and just bowl season in general, and we haven't really had that as much. So I do want to devote some time to some of these other bowl games. Uh, for the New Year's Six matchups that aren't the college football playoff, is there one matchup that maybe sticks out to you the most that you're most interested to watch? It, definitely the Rose Bowl. You know, I think this matchup has got a lot of appeal because you have Ohio State's high-powered offense with C.J. Stroud and those three receivers for Ohio State that could all be first-team All-America this year. And then you have on the other side a Utah team that's coming in with the you know Pac-12 champions for the first time, their first appearance in the Rose Bowl, and they play a different style. They are physical. They are ready to beat people up in the trenches, and that's what's given Ohio State a lot of trouble this year. So I'm just excited to watch the contrast in styles. Is it the physical Utah team that wins out, or is it sort of the, the high-powered Ohio State passing game that ends up holding serve in the Rose Bowl? I'm curious because you mentioned the Ohio State receivers, and, and I asked you the question about the, the Georgia D-line versus the Michigan D-line. If you were ranking, because I know in like the, the preseason magazine every year, you have the you know top 10 position groups of this team has best quarterback group or running back group. If you had to rank like what position group was the most valuable to their team in college football, would the Ohio State receivers and the Georgia defensive linemen, like if we took quarterbacks out of the equation because of obvious their value obviously is kind of uh, different, uh, would those two probably be at the top of that list? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a very fair kind of assessment because, you know, for Georgia, you see how dominant they've been against the run this year, how good they've been able to get to the quarterback. And, and the whole defense played off of that until Alabama could block Georgia successfully nobody took advantage uh, of their secondary so they were sort of hiding a weakness all year and for Ohio State you know CJ Stroud has been great he, you know, he's gotten better 
over the course of the season. But, you know, those three receivers, Wilson, Alave, Smith, and Jigba, I mean, they are just so valuable to making that offense go. And it's not just the big plays, it's the acrobatic catches that they've been making all season. So, yeah, I mean, to me, Georgia's defensive line, Ohio State's receiving core, throw in Michigan's defensive front, uh, maybe Alabama's receivers too because you get Jamison Williams and had John Mechie. Uh, man, there's, there's a pretty good position groups there. Yeah, I feel like it could be a BuzzFeed quiz. Like, which, which positional group are you in college football? <laughs> you could even do that with the Ohio State receivers. Like, which Ohio State receiver is your favorite? Because they all bring so many different things to the table. Uh, so those are the New Year's Six Bowls. You mentioned Ohio State, Utah as, as your favorite. Um uh, was there a matchup that you were hoping would have happened that didn't end up happening? You know, I kind of wanted to see Notre Dame and Pittsburgh play mm-hmm. in the Peach Bowl because we would have got the Notre Dame defense against Pitt and Kenny Pickett, the high-powered offense. But, you know, I, I do think overall the matchups in the New Year's Six are pretty appealing. I mean, the fact that we get two good defenses with Notre Dame and Oklahoma State playing in the Fiesta Bowl – and then also, you know, the sugar with Matt Corral and Ole Miss, the firepower against Baylor's defense and kind of physical offense. I actually think that the New Year's Six Bowl matchups are maybe some of the more appealing that we've had in a couple of years. Maybe not big-name teams, but I think certainly there's some appeal with the way that the styles and the players match up. Do you have a favorite non-New Year's Six Bowl game? I don't know. Maybe it'd be, you know, Oklahoma, Oregon, or uh, maybe something more obscure. Do you have a, a favorite there? Absolutely, yeah. Oregon and Oklahoma is really appealing just because of the storylines in this game. You know, two interim coaches. Uh, there's some bad blood from Oklahoma. You know, the onside kick way back, I think, in twenty, you know, 2006 with how that game played out between Oregon <laughs> And Oklahoma, but yeah, I mean, there's just so much intrigue around those two. I'm also just one of the things about bowl season I like is fun matchups in Tennessee and Purdue in the Music City Bowl. If you want offense and you like high-powered quarterbacks and receivers, like there might be you know 70 points in that game between those two. So I'm interested to see Tennessee and Purdue. And if you're looking further down the list. I'm interested in the Frisco Bowl with UTSA and San Diego State, two group of five teams that were ranked this year for most of the playoff rankings. Uh, it's a good matchup of two double-digit win teams meeting up in Frisco. We're talking with Stephen Lassen of Athlon Sports. You mentioned with Oregon, the interim head coach factor, there's a report today about you know Oregon wanting to, to interview Chip Kelly. Um, I'm curious, with the coaching carousel going in full steam this year, maybe more than any we've seen in, in quite some time, if ever. Uh, what your thoughts would be on a, a Chip Kelly Oregon reunion if that were to happen? And would that even be like a, a top five thing that would happen in the coaching carousel this year? <laughs> Man, I, you know, this coaching carousel has been crazy. You know, I don't remember a time where two top 10 coaches left two top 10 jobs to go to other top 10 jobs. And Lincoln Riley and Brian Kelly. I mean, there has just been so much movement, and part of it is because there just there wasn't a lot of you know coordinator sort of group of five coaches ready to make that move this year. And when you see some of the dollars that are being thrown around, you could understand why uh, Lincoln Riley and Brian Kelly are on the move. It's maybe a little bit easier to win a championship at their new destination. So it, it has just been fascinating. But I, I would love to see Chip back at Oregon. You know, those offenses at Oregon. Back in the when he was there, high powered, fun to watch. 
you know, he's kind of changed how he plays offensively, uh, but still, you know, just getting chipped back at Oregon and all that, I think it would be fun for the Pac-12. In general, it is an interesting time for Oregon to hire a head coach because they are one of the last Power Five jobs to hire one. So the pool of candidates that they're getting from might have been a little bit different had they needed a head coach a week or two ago. Uh, usually there's a, there's a team that, that wins a big bowl game, I feel like, and it either vaults them up to being, you know, after they win it, it's like, oh, that's probably going to be the preseason number one or, uh, a top three or four preseason ranking. I, I think back to, you know, USC with Sam Darnold, they win the Rose Bowl or, I don't know, I, th- I think USC with Mark Sanchez. Is USC all over, I guess. Um, uh, is there somebody that comes to mind that you think by winning a bowl game, it will launch them into that headspace for us coming into uh, next year of thinking, hey, maybe they're like a top five or top five-ish team? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I would throw out Utah. And we, did, we talked a little bit about the Rose Bowl. Utah is a team that, you know, they stumbled a couple times early in the year, but they got better over the course of the season. They bring back a lot off the two deep from this year's team that won the Pac-12. And you start thinking about the Pac-12 next year, USC's got a new coach. Oregon's got a new coach. I, I think right now Utah on paper is probably the easy favorite in the Pac-12. And if they beat Ohio State in the Rose Bowl, it wouldn't shock me if they start next year in the top 10 to 15. So I, I think certainly Utah's a team to watch. I think Texas A&M will be a team to watch. They finished 8-4, and four, had a kind of a bad loss at LSU but they've got a lot of guys coming back next year, too. And if they can beat uh, Wake Forest in the Gator Bowl, I think you'll see some early top 10 consideration for Texas A&M next year. What are you more excited for this weekend, the Army-Navy game or the Heisman ceremony? Got to go Army-Navy. You know, I hate to say this, but I feel like the Heisman, There's, I think we know Bryce Young's probably going to win it. I mean, up until like last week, there was a lot of suspense. There really wasn't a favorite. But I think the fact that he had such a strong game in the kind of biggest stage against Georgia, he probably vaulted to number one, and it sort of cleared the field. I I love the Army-Navy game, just the rivalry, the pageantry, everything about it. And just any time there's a game on Saturday, I'm going to be watching. So I'm probably more excited about that than the Heisman. All right, Stephen, before we let you go here, my producer and co-host Adam Dravetta, who asked, question earlier um he we do a segment here called one last thing with adam so adam take it away all right steven one last thing what is the approximate population of bon aqua tennessee oh man that's a good question i couldn't you know, i couldn't I, find it so this isn't even a quiz this is uh this is just me asking you know i'm trying to think because it's actually on the front of the newspaper here locally and i just looked at that last night and i can't even <laughs> remember what i read oh man, it's got to be it's got to be probably around two to three thousand, I would think. That's it. Okay, it's not very much. According yeah. to the wow. Wikipedia, it's not even an incorporated township. Wow, that's right. Yeah, we we are a very small town. We have one uh, traffic light here. <laughs> I got to tell you, if, if your if your town name means good water, you better be living up to that. How's is the water good down there? <laughs> Yeah, I can, uh, you know, people who have visited here from out of town say it's good water. So All right, so I, no need for a Brita filter in Bon Aqua. <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Well, he is Stephen Lassen of Athlon Sports. You can catch him drinking some good old water. Uh, Stephen, <laughs> thank you so much for the time as always, man. We really appreciate it. Hey, guys, anytime. Thanks for having me on. 
All right, that is Stephen Lassen of Athlon Sports. With Adam Dravetta, I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chuck Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320, KLWN. Bill Self will hear from his presser earlier today on the other side. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chuck Sports Talk or the best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Five o'clock hour. I'm Derek Johnson. Along with me, Adam Dravetta. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Don't forget, you check out our best of RCST podcast. We'll be live tomorrow out at 23rd Street Brewery. We've got a bunch of Crush Mizzou t- uh, t-shirts to give away. You just got to come by and you get a free t-shirt. That's simple. Uh, so KU takes on Missouri on Saturday. We've got that for you here, as always, on KLWN 215, pregame at 1245. I think it's so wild because I and you've experienced this growing up, KU fan. <laughs> you've I been ever? to the games. You went to the last game, which last which I'm one. curious. I want to get your thoughts on that in a second. But um, I've I've never experienced this. I came to KU the year after, um, or I guess it would have been a year and a half after, depending on you know timelines, everything. Because I came to KU in 2013, so at that point the rivalry was already dead for a year. Fall of 13, yeah. to be clear. So I I've never experienced um, what the rivalry is like, and it's just so wild to me how excited people are for a game that, if all goes to what's predicted, is going to be a totally one-sided affair. And I think that's awesome. Which I guess uh, before we get into past memories here, I'm curious uh, your thoughts on this because I have a thought on this as well. Would you rather with your rival? absolutely crush them every single year or have to sweat it out every single year um, and sometimes you lose in this particular case i'd rather crush them because okay. they're really bad so if it, I said, it would be a bad sign and, and i'm saying in this i guess this is kind of a hypothetical you would literally win every single game you would never lose once you would crush them every single time yeah i mean i, I would you, prefer would that you view it as a rivalry yeah, yeah that's part of it um in this case yes because um mm-hmm. They support slavery, and to crush that that belief system is something I would always want to do. And that's what I think so cool about this rivalry. For not- the record, the reason they're called the Tigers is because there was a, ball- a battalion of Confederate soldiers meant to defend Columbia that were nicknamed Tigers. So they still hold true to those roots. That's crazy. For anybody who claims they, they, they don't. I, I understand. Look, nobody yeah. there nobody there still supports slavery, I to be clear. But that they do, they hold true to that part of their history. Why is why is the University of Missouri like the the whatever section called the Antlers? What does that have to do with the Tigers? So that that they made a documentary about this uh, rivalry. It was on what used to be Metro Sports, which was a Kansas City station, uh, no longer exists. Um, I don't know how they got the name Antlers. Uh, how that Tigers came up. does not have an antler. No, I know, but I don't know how that name came up. But I do know that they were. They, it started as just a group of fans who were one night. They were at, um, I think, a KFC the night before the KU Missouri game, and I think the game the next day worked out for them, hmm. and that that kind of began a tradition of going just a bunch of bumpkins going to KFC the <laughs> night before a damn game. Uh, and they call themselves the Antlers, okay. and, and they get, um, depending on who you ask, they get drunk and throw their booze bottles at the players. Yeah, we heard uh, it from David Lawrence yesterday, right? They throw so, urine cups. Um, yeah, so they, they come out, they show their true colors. Um, I guess 
I think I don't, I don't know because on one hand, like you don't want to ever lose your rival. I get what you're saying though. I just think it's kind of an interesting question because yeah, would mean, it be a rivalry if you literally won every telling, single game? The manner in which, um, the manner in which KU won that game was amazing in 2012, and I think it did mean more because Kansas had lost to Missouri and Columbia that year. Yeah, and I, you know, so it. I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, so you know to. The ideology aside, because um, it's been 160 years since bleeding Kansas, so all of that aside, there is something when it comes to just a sports rivalry, it does make it more fun when there is a, a chance. I mean, there's a chance of losing any game you play, but you know when when both teams are really good, it's it's so much more fun. It really is, and and so I do feel something there. Um, whereas now you're kind of going to this game Saturday thinking, you know, it's going to be a disappointment if KU doesn't roll because of statistically just how bad this particular Missouri team is. And you were at the last KU-Missouri game. February you were at the 25th, T-Rob block. 2012. What was that like? I mean, please describe that as best you can. Um, it was it, it was it was amazing. It was so perfect um, the way it worked. It was an afternoon game, and everybody talks about afternoon games at Allen Fieldhouse and the and – the, light coming through the window, so it was perfect that they didn't make it a 7 o'clock p.m. game. I think the game in Columbia earlier that February, which I think was on the 4th of February, uh, was the late 7 p.m. game. And so it got national attention, um, but it, it you know there's something, you know, anybody who talks about Allen Fieldhouse talks about how wonderful and, and magical it is when the sun comes in through those windows. Um, and it was like that. Um we we had actually we were like 30th or no we were 36th or 38th was our camping number and i went out with some friends thursday night i had a friend who was in law school in michigan and his spring break happened to be that week and so he came into town and we went out we went to a, a concert uh, at the bottleneck that thursday night um all of this is relevant i promise and then the next morning, I get up and I get a text from our group leader saying whoever was supposed to be there at 6 a.m. didn't show up for our shift. So we got crossed off the list and got moved to the end. So that was infuriating because there's about 160 groups that year. Um, and he used some connections with other groups and we were able to get group number 30 to save us some seats. So it actually, we got bumped a few spots ahead because of that. But so we get in there. Um, you're doing the normal pregame routine. I'm sitting there. There's so much anticipation. I kept thinking back to 2009 when Missouri beat Kansas and Columbia, uh, but then Kansas came back on senior day on a Saturday afternoon in Allen Fieldhouse and just destroyed that Missouri press. I, you know, this this wasn't a pressing Missouri team, but you know, I thought it'd be kind of cool if that's the way it happened. Um, it starts off. It's back and forth. I'm I'm a bundle of nerves, so I'm not making much noise. Uh, and I, you know, I'm just, I'm so nervous. Um, it goes back and forth. Missouri obviously takes control. They're up 12 at halftime. And, uh, for a brief moment, Charlie Weiss spoke at halftime and, and we were, um, you know, that was whatever. We all know how that tenure worked out in, in, in football. Uh, but then the halftime show, it wasn't the Frisbee dogs. It wasn't the gymnasts. It wasn't any of that. It was a wing eating contest. And so we were all depressed, losing and, and nervous, losing by twelve to Missouri at halftime. And we got to watch these 
you know, two goobers engorge themselves on <laughs> wings. And I'm like, I don't want to be watching this right now. So that comes and goes. Um, it comes out, and then in, in a blink of an eye, man, Missouri's up 18, 19 at one point, and I was going. And at that point, I'm honest to God thinking, I'm trying to, like, make the like, – I'm, I'm trying to um, to make myself feel better. Like, I was almost like, well, God, if, you know, there's a good chance we lose this game. How am I still going to have a good weekend? And, and I'm like, well, I think that night was the all-star skills competition in the NBA, so I'm trying to, like, think about different ways – how that would still be, you know, I'm trying to pull up some optimism. Um, and then, you know, a few shots go down, a few things happen. And I'll never forget at one point the the, the KU, the, the basket we were behind, KU was shooting at that basket in the second half. Um, and I'll never forget there was this play, I think, to bring KU back within 12. And Thomas Robinson got the ball. And it wasn't a super set play. He just got the ball down low, and he turned around, and it wasn't a hook shot. It was just a dead-on shot, somewhat guarded. And I remember him hitting that shot, and I got we we're down 12, and I got like this moment. And I'm like, you know what? It might be okay. And I just kept telling myself, get to within 10 with 10 minutes left. That's all I want right now, get to within 10 with 10 minutes left. And they chiseled back, and they chiseled back, and they chiseled back, and they chiseled back, and it kept happening. And I'm I'm trying to not, like I'm being superstitious, so I'm not. I know what the score is, but I would not allow myself to look at the scoreboard unless it was a timeout. And you could feel with each timeout that KU was gaining momentum. So I look at the score, and I look at the score, and I look at the score, and then KU's down three. Uh, Thomas Robinson gets fouled. It's an and one, and he hits the shot. They've got some time left. And, you know, the place is insane. And you you see Pressy start toward the basket, and, and you don't really – I didn't have enough time to think, oh, my God, this is how we're going to lose this game. I didn't have time to process all those thoughts because I just – all at once I see Thomas Robinson cutting from the other side. And your first instinct when, when, your, man, when your big man cuts from the weak side is that they're going to have a guy to dump it off to. And I look and I go, there's nobody to dump that off to. And, you know, the block happens – and then I did, my mind was, because of the adrenaline, my mind was going so quickly at that point, Travis Relliford had the ball, and I even had time to think, is this rivalry going to end with a three-quarter <laughs> court heave by Travis Relliford to win this thing? And, of course, it didn't. Um, they they swatted that, um, and, and the place just is going bananas at that point. And, uh, and I, I just was, it was amazing. And I, I remember that there was the, the, the woman who was in our camping group was uh, her name was Maddie, and Maddie was uh, not very tall. I'm for those who don't know, I'm six foot three. Maddie was maybe five one, and the reason that's important is because Maddie stood on the the bench. She didn't stand on the ground okay. while we were yeah. in the game. She stood on the bench because she couldn't block anybody who was <laughs> behind her because she was so little. So Maddie was a very tiny person. She maybe weighed ninety pounds. Anyway, so overtime comes. Overtime starts with kind of a broken possession that ends with Travis Relliford kicking it out to Tyshawn Taylor, who cans a three for KU's first lead till the, since there was like 14 minutes left in the first half. The, play, the, the place just explodes. And at, at that point, I'm thinking, you know, like Memphis National title game. They're going to run away oh, with this. We're just going to yeah. run away with this thing. And credit Missouri. They kept, I mean, they, I think they actually got down by five at one point in that overtime. 
and then they chiseled back, and it went blow for blow. And I think the last shot Missouri made was this incredible. Yeah, it hit off the back it, bridge. Yeah, it was this amazing shot. Shots don't shot. go in from there. Yeah, they made a terrific shot to t- take an 86-85 lead. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about the end of the game. No, no, no. Yeah, no. Okay. I'm talking, no, they had one from the baseline mm-hmm. that was just this beautiful shot. And, and credit to them, I think um, Kim English might have put it in. Um, whoever it was, it goes in. And so it's 86-85, eight seconds left. And in my mind, I'm like, it's just not right to think that KU is going to lose this mm-hmm. game. It just wouldn't be right after everything that's happened. So they come down. Tyshawn gets fouled. Um, if we're being perfectly honest, I actually think that was a more questionable call than Thomas Robinson not getting called for the foul on Pressy. I think that was um, – had that foul gone against my team, I would have been pretty angry. Mm-hmm. But regardless, Tyshawn Taylor gets fouled, and I'm thinking this is perfect. Because in Columbia, Tyshawn Taylor missed a couple big free throws at the end, which helped Missouri win that game. And I'm kind of thinking that's this is perfect. Tyshawn Taylor's going to can these. Poetic. And bam, bam, and it's 87-86. Everyone's going nuts. You see Danny Manning and Bill Self trying to direct traffic, making sure everybody's in the right spot for Missouri's final possession. And they're coming forward with the ball. And I'm looking at the clock, and I'm looking at them, and I'm looking at them, and I'm looking at the clock, and I'm looking at the clock, and I'm looking at them, and I go, they're not moving fast enough. They're not going fast enough. This is amazing. They're not going to get a shot off. They're not going to get a shot off. And it was so loud, Derek, that I didn't hear the buzzer. I just saw the wow. backboard light up red, <laughs> and everybody went insane. And at that moment, I told you about Maddie, the girl that was standing next to me. I just lose myself in the moment I pick her up and I lift her up and I'm going insane and and she's freaking out and our, we're all going nuts but what I will never ever ever forget as long as I live because what's so wonderful to me when you're at a, a sporting event especially at a place like Allen Fieldhouse is when you're there it feels like your own universe you're in tune with all of these other people because you're all paying attention to this game so you immediately have something in common with 16,000 mm-hmm. other people and, and, and we're all there, and it feels like its own world. Like, you forget that there's this outside world going on. All that matters at that moment is that game. And, I, and the pep band, I don't know if they still do this, but at that time, the KU pep band at the end of the game would play the fight song, then they would play Stars and Stripes Forever, and then as, as fans are filing out, uh, they would softly play Home on the Range. Mm-hmm. And that was their routine. And they did that. And nobody was gone. They went through all <laughs> three awesome. of those songs, and nobody would Encore, leave. Encore, baby. And because we didn't want to go, we couldn't believe what had just happened. We didn't want to leave. Everybody was still in that arena except for the Missouri fans. And so there's probably still fifteen thousand five hundred people left. And so the band just had to start playing music <laughs> because they nobody would leave. Oh, I love that. Um, and so I, I, that was probably, and and I'm I'm beginning to digest what had just happened. Um. And then finally, we're like, all right. And so we leave. Um, and I, I, I couldn't believe, I, I don't know. I just, I was so happy. I tell people all the time whenever I talk to a student at KU, this is two things you need to talk, there's two things you need to experience in your time at KU a Final Four and um, a game at Allen Field S that you'll never forget. Derek, in your case, it was, yeah, it was three, KU Oklahoma. Three overtime o- OU game. Night before my um, birthday. It was great. I will never, ever forget that game. It could not have been. More perfect. It wouldn't have been better if it was a blowout in KU's favor. It wouldn't have been better, I think, if, if KU just went blow for blow with Missouri for the rest of the game, and, and that's how it went to overtime. 
I think it had to be mm-hmm. the way it was. It was beautiful, and I will never, ever forget how I felt that day throughout the whole day, from the beginning to the to the deficit, um, to overtime, to winning. I will never forget. And I, I kept, I, it was one of those things where I'm like, I know when you when you you have those moments in your life where you know I'm gonna be, this is a story I'm gonna right. tell. And, and so I was trying to get in as much detail as I possibly could because I knew I was going to be talking about that forever. Um, and I knew even if I wasn't going to be talking about it, I would want to remember it forever. No, but here you are. Um, and I, 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 on the I public love airwaves. so much that I have that memory. I love that I have that memory. Well, thank you for sharing that. That was fun story time with Adam. And I'm sure a lot of people lived a similar thing to you and, and they have it very common. I'm hoping that this game on Saturday isn't quite that intense. I don't think it's going to be in terms of how the game rhythm goes, but certainly it means a lot to a lot of people and uh, looking forward to kind of being in the experience for the first time on Saturday. With Adam Dravetta, I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You're listening in on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, klwn.com. Depend on it.